This is Apollo Control at 102 hours, 12 minutes into the flight of Apollo 11. I think I was in my pajamas and I remember being cold. We're now 2 minutes 53 seconds from reacquiring the spacecraft. I remember uh, that fuzzy white shape on, on my screen, which was the astronaut uh, coming down and... Loud and clear. Roger, we see your uh, verb 47. The very first step on the moon was at nighttime, Romanian time, and uh, we've been all waiting all night. Houston, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. Somehow, my parents forgotten about me. I was left there somewhere in between the chairs uh, because they, they're all waiting to see what's happening, what's going on with that surface. Uh, there were speculations, I mean, would that soft dust swallow the astronaut? I'm going to step off the lamp now. I saw a little bit of moon dust uh, being uh, kicked by his boots. That's one small step for man. That voice you just heard was Bogdan Marku, a rocket scientist at USC who, as a 10-year-old boy, was watching the space race unfold from behind the Iron Curtain in communist Romania. Welcome to Escape Velocity. We're your hosts, Daniel Drahora and Amy Blumenthal. What Marku didn't know, the man he was watching on the screen, Neil Armstrong, he would follow in his footsteps in one way or another. So you, you weren't free to talk, of course, freely. Uh, you couldn't complain about specific things that you, you fear you might get arrested. Official TV programs that were basically two hours long every day out of these two hours, half of them were patriotic songs and uh, some really idiotic propaganda. Lack of freedom, you couldn't travel, basically you can't find food. Yeah, well, you're a young engineer and you want to do something with your career and actually have a dream of achieving something, to, to build something. Realizing that you can do it, actually, and all of a sudden being blocked. Sometimes you look like the, the person is an idiot. And many times that was it. There was some idiot apparatchik that was afraid that too much achievement or our end, the youngsters, would undermine his position of authority and therefore he would try to block people to some extent. But many times the guy was not an idiot at all. I mean, he was a very competent person. For instance, we were developing a turbine for a specific engine. We had the prototype just being warmed up in the test cell. And you have to be very careful. It's a hot product. You have to uh, break it in slowly. And he was there. He came to visit and he says, you know, go full throttle. Yeah, on my responsibility, go full throttle. And by the way, the man he's talking about is a high-level communist official. The engineer, uh, who was then directing the test, basically pulled his chair back 
turned to the minister. There was quite a bit of risk he was taking for his uh, personal career, but he said, Comrade Minister, you go full throttle. This person disappeared in the summer of 1988. Romania did not have a space program at the time, but Bogdan says they got very close to launching rockets. Only every time, there was some massive outside force that was stopping them from doing it. This particular uh, guy, he was the deputy minister of uh, machine building. And the rumor went that uh, he's being interrogated by a special unit of counterintelligence in Romania. And now you read all these materials that are being published and you realize, yeah, you know, these guys may have been working for the Soviets. Are you confused about the alliances? Who's helping who and who's sabotaging who? This is what the environment was like, creating total confusion and fear. So people disappearing in Romania was an everyday occurrence, actually. This was happening to any intellectual who stood up and said anything. If you were going to challenge the status quo, you just go, you just disappear. So as a young engineer, you're super frustrated. You had this feeling of being locked in a box. That's the feeling that for people that had my dream was a very strong drive to get out. There are a few people that uh, left the hard way, that is, crossed the border, uh, risking of being shot. One way was to swim across the Danube to um, what was then Yugoslavia. In my case, I had my little plan. I was good friends with Mario Neto, who was the son of uh, former president of Angola. Mario uh, was my college mate for the last um, three years of college. I told him at some point, hey, uh, you know, how could I get out? I had shared this with my wife at the time. And we both agreed, yes, we're going to get out. I didn't know exactly how I was, how I was going to do it, but uh, this was scheduled for the summer of 1990. Escaping from behind the Iron Curtain was deadly dangerous at the time. This is what Mario had planned. Marku was supposed to board a flight to Luanda, Angola, but he would never make it there. He would stop in Rome. So you're saying he was going to defect? Right. He would just get off the plane and disappear. Like a Bond movie, everything was set. But then came Christmas, 1989. Bucharest Radio reports that ousted communist dictator Nikolai Ceausescu and his wife have been executed. They were executed for, quote, grave crimes against Romania. Life in Romania has changed extraordinarily. Homes are warmer, streets are brighter, there's more food in the shops, people speak and act openly. And why? Because the Romanian people decided to end their enforced enslavement to the dictator Nicolae Ceausescu. There was only one other way out. USC. Mario was here at USC at the time. He explained to me the concept of graduate assistantship, which was completely unknown in Eastern Europe at the time. It's a long stretch, it's a long shot. So you have to study, you have to pass some exams, you have to do a very uh, serious application. Uh, but you can try nevertheless. And are you in or, or out? And I said, sure, in.
So Mario, God bless his soul, uh, sent me in Romania the GRE training books. Of course, something we've never seen. And the GRE was not offered in Bucharest at the time. I went and bought uh, dollars on the black market. The GRE was paid already, but to pay for the lodging, it was a little wooden cabin that we found in the outskirts of Budapest. We sold uh, cotton socks and cotton underwear to make money. I go and, and take this long exam with this pressure that, you know what, you have this one shot, don't screw it up. Not only you don't have money, or maybe you can make money for another shot, but, but there's the feeling that no, the stars will not light up again. And at the end of the evening, I was there the entire day. I didn't eat anything except coffees and espressos. And here comes my wife and my brother-in-law. They're all happy. They had to explore the city. And they're telling me, Bogdan, let us show you something. We've discovered something really cool. What is it? They say it's a McDonald's. Jerry's complete. Marku was on his way back to Bucharest to work on his exit strategy. But a chance encounter with an American tourist who was making his way through Europe would seal his fate. That man was Harold Greifer. And this is his audio travelogue through Europe in that summer of 1990. Here he is at the Berlin Wall. Long view of the wall. Graffiti all over it. Saturday morning, June 2nd, in East Berlin. These are the crosses in memory of the people that died here at the wall in crossing. But that, for whatever it's worth, is where Hitler died. May he suffer a thousand deaths. We are in downtown Sofia. And that's the Alexander Nevsky Cathedral. Last night I was downtown at a big demonstration in the Nevsky Square where the students were protesting the loss of the election to the communists and the communist party structure. The people on the street claimed that the election was stolen from them. What this American tourist saw was a European transition. As Greifer moved further east from Germany to Romania, he met with increasing social and political tensions that were just coming to a head. Arriving in Bucharest, he walked straight into a miners' revolt. Somewhere downtown, Marco was in the middle of it all, caught in the vortex of violence. And I was driving back through the center of Bucharest, and all of a sudden I see these miners everywhere. So the first thing I did, I called my wife. I stopped and found a payphone. I said, I'm going to come pick you up. You got to come see this. This is history. This is something that we got to see. I didn't realize how dangerous it was. And all of a sudden I see this 
older person and what attracted my attention was um, that his face was white. The miners are active. They're out beating people. There they are with their truncheons. To this day, I can explain my reaction. I realized that if they start hitting him or something really bad is going to happen. The police are letting them do anything they want. I left my wife and that friend of mine that was with us and shot across the street. It was a relatively narrow street. I got to him realizing he doesn't know what's going on. I, I sense he's, I thought he's a reporter, like an older reporter. My instinct told me that, well, if he's got a pass of a reporter and I show it to these people, they'll realize, well, he's accredited. They were coming towards me with intent to do bodily harm, primarily because they objected to my having a video camera. They thought I was video cameraing uh, their abuse of, the, of people on the street. We were already surrounded by three, four, maybe more miners. They had these uh, thick hoses with metal insertions that is used for pneumatic equipment in the mines, but they were using that as weapons. I asked Harold for a pass, and I thought a pass that a press reporter would have, but he understood passport, and he took his American passport. That was the very first time I saw an American passport, but I recognized the eagle. And I uh, sh shoved Greifer passport in their faces, and I basically told them, just back off. We need America, we need the friendship of America, leave this guy alone, I'll take care of, of this. And they asked me for my ID. And luckily I was working for this research institute that had a very elaborate ID with all sorts of stamps on it. Uh, we then left that area, went to a coffee house, where we discussed what the situation was in Romania. And he's asking me, like, well, what just happened? And I, I tried to explain the best I could, although it wasn't that clear to me. And there was this conversation about politics. He was calming down, I was telling him. And uh, then he asked me, what are you doing? I explained to him, I explained actually very quickly, I jumped to the USC thing. I told you know, I actually, I, I just, in the process to uh, apply to an American university, and uh, it's a university in Los Angeles. And there was this silent moment where he looked at me and he said, that's funny, I'm from Los Angeles. Fast forward to November and this friend of mine leaving to Sorbonne, she's getting into the train to go to Paris by train, and I have this big envelope with many other envelopes, one for admissions office, one for the um, department, asking for a graduate assistantship, everything that Mario told me to do. And I give her $20 and I say, I hope it's enough for postage from Paris to Los Angeles. And one more thing, here is this letter to a friend in Los Angeles. So basically I wrote Gray for, you know, remember who I am, da da da. All I need is to wait until about January and then go to USC and just verify that my papers have made it to the proper offices. I think if my dossier in the admissions office was in a big pile of applicants, uh, it just made it towards the top. That was Greifer's hand. And then my mother calls 
USC had sent an old-style telegram. You know, dear Bogdan, stop. We've tried to contact you so many times, stop. You've been offered a graduate assistantship with the Department of Aerospace Engineering, stop. We would like to know as soon as possible if you accept this, stop. That's when I felt that this was the escape, it was for real. I'm leaving Romania and I, I call Greifer's number and of course I get Greifer's uh, voicemail, he wasn't home, and I leave him a message with the date of my arrival. And he told me I, he had to rewind and listen to that message about 20 times because I was so, I don't know what maybe uh, emotion basically took over, but I was not pronouncing well. So he didn't really understand until after many times. So he waited for me at the airport and he took me straight to USC where I began the process of registration. As he stepped on USC's campus, Marku was following the footsteps of the man he watched take the first step on the moon so many years ago, USC alumnus Neil Armstrong. When Marku was excited to be in his new home and moving towards greatness, he also left a lot behind. It was a, like an implicit understanding that I would try to leave between myself and my mother. My, my dad was there, but she, he was less involved in, in this type of discussions. And when I left, my mom told me that he walked the city for about three days on his own, being uh, totally hurt by the fact that I left, but understanding that, you know, kid, kids live. You, you, can't, you can't just hold them. That was his only way to withstand that, just walk the city for three days until he kind of accepted it. The man who once tried to bypass the borders of his own country, who felt as if he was intellectually trapped in a box, is now pushing the boundaries of human exploration into space. Not only that, but he's working on the AR-1 rocket engine project as a lead turbine aerodynamics engineer at the Aerojet Rocketdyne Corporation. This AR-1 engine will eliminate the dependence of U.S. rockets on the Russian-made RS-180 engines. Interesting turn of events. Right. I mean, for the last 15 years, we've been dependent on the Russians to get to space. Which is kind of interesting if you think about it, from the Iron Curtain, Russia, just that sort of legacy. To the Red Planet. Yeah. I had been working for 14 years at uh, what was then Pratt & Whitney Rocketdyne. That's another wonderful company. I think about it. It's the company that built the uh, space shuttle engines. And I had the chance to work on those engines. Uh, I, I had the chance to design a small turbine that probably was the last new piece of equipment that uh, flew on Atlantis in 2007. But then SpaceX called me around 2010. Uh, SpaceX uh, just uh, began the development of this new Falcon 9 rocket, uh, which is flying today. Uh, we got into the development of the new engine, which was done in record time. We began in June 2011, and by the spring of 2012, we were ready to test the first engine. For rocket engines, this is a super fast track. You, you've never seen this before. By fall of 2013, that was the first flight. For an engineer to design something and see that something blasts into space is the ultimate achievement. So many things had to line up for me to achieve this, 
that I feel in a sense that um, is not exactly my entire merit. My only merit is that I listen to the wind and I put the sail in the right direction. And to this day, I'm telling my friends when we drink and discuss the old times and so forth, yes, there are two Americas, there are more, but, but these two are uh, basically different. They coexist, but they're different. And I came to the America Live environment. That's what I wanted, that's what I dreamt about. And there are some people that didn't know exactly what they wanted, but they ended up into the Greyhound America. And I think these people are not happy. They're not happy here, they won't be happy if we're going back. What is the Greyhound America? I think it's an America where you somehow missed your direction and nothing happens. And America Live? America Live is SpaceX. It's Rocketdyne. Uh, it's USC for that matter. What you get from talking to Marco is that he found more than just America Live. He found a family with the Greifers. Harold became a father figure and mentor to Marco. And that relationship continued until 1999 when Harold passed away. Greifer was a very complex personality and a beautiful one for that matter. We're going together uh, concerts and we did that quite a bit after his wife died i would go just meet hal and go and uh, basically sit together and listen to the music didn't talk much and then afterwards we'd have a drink and he'd tell me his own opinions he had many of them he had a super good mind in terms of understanding the world of business for many years uh, for the events that were happening in his family I was invited and somehow treated as a representative on earth of Hal for the, you know, graduation of his granddaughter, the graduation of his grandson, the uh, wedding of his grandson. I was there and they were, they were telling me, the Greifers were saying, you know, Bogdan, you're here and Hal is here with you. All these chain of events and the people I met through the Greifer family helped me become aware of myself. It's the perfect gift. Right now you're living the dream. Yeah, I think it's correct. Five, four, three, two, one, zero. Turby School of Engineering, this is Escape Velocity. Thank you for listening. Escape Velocity executive producers are Abby Smith and Michael Chubb. Our theme music was written and performed by Will Brumbach. Our mix engineer is Ryan Stewart.